save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. He came too slowly. He lay face down at the water's edge with the lower half of his body partially submerged beneath the lapping waves. His head was pointed toward the bluff. Over his shoulder the sun was rising, breaking pink and gold through the hazy twilight. It was far too pretty of a morning considering all that had occurred the night before. He was shivering. It was so cold. His skin was numb and it made it difficult to think. His head throbbed especially towards the base of the skull where the guy had hit him. He felt around back there and winced. He lumbered to his feet. Lightning bolts of pain shot through his neck as he stumbled his way back up toward the house, toward Marilyn and Chip. It was 5.40 a.m. on July 4, 1954, when the phone rang in the home of Spencer Hook, startling him awake. Spencer was the mayor of Bay Village and Sam Shepard's friend and neighbor, Shepard was shouting into the phone even before he put it to his ear. My God, Spen, get over here quick. I think they've killed Marilyn. Thus would begin the long and tragic odyssey of Dr. Samuel Shepard, a man who many believed murdered his wife, a man whose story inspired multiple TV shows and movies, a man at the center of what many believed to be one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in American history. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm probably guilty of something. And this is The Conspirators. On July 3rd, 1954, Dr. Sam Shepard held a party at his lakefront home in Bayview, Ohio. This wasn't exactly welcome news for his wife, Marilyn. She was four months pregnant and already not feeling terribly well on this hot July day. She was mad at Sam for not asking her first before he invited over 20 couples, mostly interns and their spouses from the hospital. That, and he didn't even stick around to help. Early that Saturday morning, Sam went into Bayview Hospital to work for a few hours, leaving Marilyn to shop for groceries, spruce up the yard, and do some cleaning around the house in order to get the place ready for their guests later that day. Marilyn tried to be a good sport about it and put on her best face. At 31, people still swore she could pass for a teenager. She was well-liked in the community and she liked her home and her life in this affluent Cleveland suburb. The previous winter had been a difficult one for her relationship with her husband. Sam had admitted to having an affair that he swore was over. So the couple agreed to give their relationship one more try. Part of the arrangement in their marriage was that she was expected to act the part of the dutiful wife to the handsome young doctor, and by God, she was going to do it even if it killed her. Sam and Marilyn were high school sweethearts back in Cleveland Heights High School. From the first moment they met, Sam was one of the shining stars of the school, bright, handsome, athletic, one of those guys who just seemed to be good at everything. He was an A student. He played multiple sports and did well at all of them. 
class president for three years in a row. After he graduated, colleges were lining up to offer him athletic scholarships, but he chose instead to follow in his father's legendary footsteps and pursue a career in osteopathic medicine. He enrolled at Hanover College in Indiana to study pre-osteopathic medicine, then later went on to study at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. He finished his degree by studying at the Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians and Surgeons and interned at an L.A. hospital for some time after that. But the pull of home was too strong, and more importantly, the pull of the girl he'd left behind. He married Marilyn Reese on February 21, 1965, before the couple settled into their new life in Bay Village. He went to work at the Bayview Hospital that his father had built, and after a few years they had their first child, Sam Jr., but everyone called him Chip. It was the perfect life, one filled with money and prestige and all the trappings that came with it. On July 3, 1954, Marilyn wasn't the only one who wasn't feeling up to a party. It turned out to be a rough day at the hospital for Sam as well. They brought a little boy into the emergency room who had been run over by a truck. The boy's heart had stopped beating, and back in those days before the invention of defibrillation, the only recourse was to crack open the child's chest and massage the heart manually. For a brief moment, the child's heart kicked back into life, but then stopped. Nothing Sam or the other doctors were able to do could resuscitate the child. The boy's father was angry, and he lashed out at Sam for not doing enough to save his child's life. All Sam could do was offer a meager apology and tell the distraught man he'd done all he could do. Sam would eventually return home later that evening, feeling shaken and worn out by the incident. But the party had to go on. He needed the support of all the interns who agreed to work cheap at the hospital in return for all the invaluable training they received from senior doctors like Sam, his brother Stephen, and of course the legendary Dr. Richard A. Shepard, their father and one of the top diagnosticians in the state. Eventually, most of the couples went home, leaving just Marilyn and her neighbors, the Aherns, at the house overlooking Lake Erie that evening. At about 8.20 that night, Sam headed back to the hospital to check the x-rays of a boy who had been brought in with a broken thigh bone. Marilyn stayed home and worked on preparing a late supper for themselves and the Aherns. After Sam returned from the hospital, he took the children into the basement and showed them his punching bag and gave them a few pointers about how to throw a proper punch. The two families ate a late dinner, which they finished off about 10.30 that evening. Nancy Ahern cleared the dishes and let Marilyn take a load off her swollen feet. Nancy would later recall shutting the living room door off the screened-in porch, and she swore that she locked it. Don Ahern took his two children home and tucked them into bed before returning to the shepherd's house. The 1950s were a different time, and back then a lot of parents felt perfectly comfortable leaving their children home alone at night. Sam helped his son Chip repair a broken toy airplane. Then afterwards, Marilyn helped the seven-year-old up to bed. It was way past his bedtime, but they made an exception because it was summer, and this was a special occasion. The two couples then settled into the living room and watched a movie on television. After a while, Sam curled up on the living room sofa where he promptly fell asleep. Marilyn began dozing off herself, and a little after midnight the Aherns tried letting themselves out quietly but Marilyn woke up anyway and walked her friends to the door. Marilyn tried waking Sam, but he was a heavy sleeper, and she decided to let him stay there on the couch. The Aherns were gone by 12.30 a.m. Nancy Ahern later told the police she could not remember whether she or Marilyn locked the kitchen door or not. 
It was the last time anyone admitted to seeing Marilyn Shepard still alive. Early on the morning of July 4th, Spencer Hook, the mayor of Bay Village, was awoken by a frantic phone call from his friend Sam Shepard, telling him that his wife Marilyn had been murdered. Spencer roused his wife out of bed and the two of them rushed over to the Shepard's home. They lived only two doors away, and in their haste never thought to grab a weapon for themselves or to phone for help. The Hooks entered through the kitchen door, which was unlocked when they got there. They found Sam in the den, leaning back on a red leather swivel chair and clutching his neck. Sam was a sight. He was bare-chested and his pants were soaked. He appeared disoriented, and after a few minutes he moved from his perch on the red leather chair to just lie down on the living room floor. They asked Sam what happened. He moaned in pain and managed to mumble out that he'd been asleep on the living room sofa when he heard Marilyn crying out his name. He rushed up the stairs to help, only someone struck him from behind and knocked him out. Esther Hook went upstairs to see what happened for herself. In the master bedroom were two twin beds. Marilyn Shepard's blood-soaked body lay on the closest bed to the door. A spray of blood dotted the walls. Marilyn was face up. Her legs hung over the foot of the bed. They were caught awkwardly under a wooden crossbar that ran from post to post along the foot of the bed. To investigators, it looked as if someone had purposely positioned them that way, perhaps to pin her body in place. A huge circle of blood spread out on the white coverlet underneath her. Her face was barely recognizable. There were about two dozen deep, crescent-shaped gashes all over her face, forehead, and scalp. Marilyn's pajama top was pushed up to her neck, bearing her breasts. A blanket was draped across her midsection, beneath which someone had pulled her pajama bottoms off one leg and bunched them around the knee of the other, exposing her genitals. It was only after Esther ran screaming down the steps for someone to call for help that anyone finally thought to check on the shepherd's son, Chip. The boy was still asleep in his bed, completely unaware of what had happened to his mother just down the hall. Among the many police and investigators that would make their way to the Shepherd home was Cuyahoga County Coroner Dr. Samuel Gerber. Cuyahoga County had a special arrangement with the local authorities that allowed the coroner to lead any investigation into a suspicious death. Dr. Gerber had been the Cuyahoga County Coroner since 1937, and he'd made it no secret to anyone that he had a bigger political ambitions to make a run for the Cleveland Mayor's office. Which made it all the more convenient when a big splashy case ended up in his lap involving a wealthy doctor and his pretty young dead wife. Those sort of headlines could offer a major boost to his political career. It was obvious from the get-go that investigators had problems with Dr. Sam Shepard's story. Even more so, it was obvious they had a problem with Dr. Sam Shepard himself. There was just something about the guy the investigators didn't like. Part of it was his wealth and good looks. There was also a certain arrogant attitude the man conveyed, like he was better than everyone else. He had a peculiar, formal way of speaking that to some of the investigators, including Dr. Gerber, made it sound like his story was overly rehearsed. It didn't help matters either that Shepard's first call that morning wasn't to the police. Rather, it was to his good friend, the local mayor. Dr. Shepard claimed that after he heard his wife scream, he ran upstairs and managed to just reach the foot of the bedroom door when someone struck him from behind and knocked him out. When he came back to, he heard a noise downstairs and ran back down to chase after it. He said he saw a large, dark figure, a biped, as he put it, outlined against the living room windows that overlooked the lake. He chased the man out of the house and down to the beach where the two of them grappled. Only the man he fought with managed to get the best of him and knocked him unconscious again. 
He came to face down in the sand hours later, sometime in the early morning. Dr. Shepard told them he was in extreme pain from where the figure had struck him in the back of the neck. His brothers took him to the hospital before police got a chance to properly question him. At the hospital, it was observed that the right side of his face and eye were swollen and bruised, and that two of his teeth were bloody and chipped. He was hypothermic. So the nurses surrounded his body with hot water bottles to bring his body temperature back up to normal. Back at the Shepherd house, police did find signs of a burglary. Shepard's medical bag was overturned and a few drawers had been pulled out. But to Dr. Gerber, the entire scene looked too neat and he was convinced it had been staged. Right from the beginning, he was certain that Dr. Sam Shepard was the primary suspect. The best description of the attacker Sam Shepard was able to provide to the police and to the newspaper reporters was that he was a bushy-haired man over six feet tall. It was too dark, he claimed, to make out any other details. Coroner Gerber thought Shepard's story sounded too vague to be believable. He also believed that Shepard's injuries were self-inflicted. From the first few headlines, newspaper reports began appearing describing Shepard as the primary suspect. For weeks, all three Cleveland newspapers were dominated with headlines about the murders. Many details were printed about Dr. Sam, as they were calling him, and his past, including several salacious stories about his history of adultery. When a front-page editorial appeared demanding a public coroner's inquest, Dr. Gerber reacted swiftly. That evening, he arranged for an inquest to occur at a local high school gymnasium, where both the press and public were invited. Gerber subpoenaed Shepard and his entire family to appear before the inquest. He ordered Shepard's attorney, William Corrigan, to sit in the audience, a good distance away from his client. At the inquest, Gerber appointed himself to act alone as both judge and jury. Over the next three evenings, Gerber questioned a series of witnesses over Shepard's character, and in particular, his relationship with Marilyn. He grilled Shepard for six hours over his relationship with a lab technician named Susan Hayes. Shepard denied having an affair with the young lab tech. When Shepard's lawyer tried standing up to protest the way his client was being treated, Dr. Gerber had him forcibly removed from the gymnasium. At the end of the third night of questioning, Gerber called an abrupt halt to the inquest without issuing a report on his findings. This was soon followed by another front-page editorial demanding Dr. Sam Shepard be arrested. This finally pushed the authorities to officially charge Dr. Shepard with his wife's murder. The press, which was already wrapped up in the story, had a field day after this. The story had everything in it that sold papers, sex, violence, intrigue, and a peek into the lives of the rich and famous. Even the tiniest rumors were reported on. There was so much media coverage of the case that it would eventually lead to a landmark ruling in the United States Supreme Court over the right of the people to know versus the rights of the accused. On October 28, 1954, Dr. Shepard went on trial for the brutal slaying of his wife. By now, the police, the county coroner, and the editor of the Cleveland Press, Louis Seltzer, were all convinced Dr. Sam was guilty of cold-blooded murder. Seltzer was an extremely powerful man in Ohio. His newspaper had thousands of readers, and he could easily shape public opinion. In the case of Sam Shepard, Seltzer sent down the order personally to his reporters that they were going to ensure that Dr. Sam was convicted. At Shepard's trial, special accommodations were made just for members of the press. In fact, so many members of the press were in attendance that they were given their own special section of the courtroom right up front, forcing Sam Shepard's own family to sit in the back. By now, the trial had become national news and several star reporters from major news outlets around the country were in attendance. Among those in attendance was a nationally syndicated columnist named Dorothy Kilgallen, 
who'd helped boost her national presence by appearing in the TV program What's My Line. Kilgallen reported on each day of the trial, giving a complete play-by-play of what happened. A jury of five men and seven women were selected. Their names and addresses were all printed in the newspapers. On the first day of the trial, the prosecutors took the jury on a field trip to the Shepherd home and walked them through the crime scene. Shepard came with them in handcuffs. Medical experts testified that the more than two dozen blows to Marilyn Shepard's head were not powerful enough to crack her skull. She actually died from massive hemorrhaging, choking to death in her own blood. Coroner Gerber proved to be the state's star witness. When Gerber took the stand, he told the jury that one of the stains on Marilyn's pillow was made by a multi-pronged surgical instrument, something only a doctor would have access to. He also claimed that the more than 50 drops of blood that led down the stairs were made by this unusually shaped medical instrument as Shepard fled with it out of the house in order to dispose of it in Lake Erie. The fact that Gerber was never able to specifically identify what sort of medical instrument this could be didn't seem to sway the jury. In accordance with the rules of the time, Shepard's attorney, William Corrigan, was denied access to the evidence, so he was unable to challenge Dr. Gerber on any of his testimony. The final witness the prosecution brought to the stand was the 24-year-old lab technician, Susan Hayes. She admitted that she and Dr. Shepard had been having an affair after all. And in fact, their romance was still going on just three months before the murder. When Shepard took the stand in his own defense, he broke down and admitted in tears to the affair, despite having lied about it during the previous inquest. He swore that Marilyn knew all about it and that the couple had decided to reconcile. Shepard's attorney did his best to corroborate Dr. Sam's version of events. Three witnesses he brought forth testified to seeing a bushy-haired man outside the Shepard home on the night of the murder. Bay Village Police even made a sketch of the man based on one of the witnesses' descriptions. Corrigan tried telling the skeptical jury that being an adulterer did not instantly make Dr. Sam a murderer. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. At the time, this would turn out to be the longest trial in American history. A full two months after the trial began, the jury finally reached a verdict. They found Dr. Sam Shepard guilty of murder in the second degree. He was sentenced to life in prison. On the day of the verdict, Lewis Seltzer bragged that his paper sold 30,000 extra copies. But the media circus around the Shepard case wasn't over yet. Two weeks after Sam Shepard's conviction, his mother Ethel committed suicide with a shotgun. One week later, the stress of the trial, along with his wife's death, caused Sam Shepard's father to die from an aggravated ulcer. Sam Shepard attended both funerals in handcuffs. When the Shepard house was finally released back to the remaining family, 
Sam's brothers went to work hiring a well-respected forensic scientist named Paul Leland Kirk to examine the crime scene and other physical evidence. Under the rules back in 1954, the defense was prevented from examining the murder scene or any of the physical evidence delivered by the prosecutors. They were also prevented from presenting any physical evidence of their own. But now that Dr. Sam had been convicted, the family moved swiftly to examine the evidence in order to prove he had been wrongly convicted. At the time, forensic investigation was still in its relative infancy, especially the science of forensic blood spatter analysis. When Paul Kirk examined the scene, he took special note of the way the blood from Marilyn Shepard's wounds had spattered in all directions from the point of impact. But, Kirk noted, that one area of wall was clean of blood splatter, indicating that the killer had stood in the path, blocking the spray. This meant that the killer would have been covered in blood, but Shepard was found only of a single tiny spot of blood in his trousers. Kirk was also able to show the very clear trail left by both the blows of the murder weapon connecting with Marilyn Shepard's head, along with the trail of blood caused by the backswing of the murder weapon. This indicated that the murder weapon had been used by the killer's left hand. Sam Shepard, it should be noted, was right-handed. One of the most important discoveries Paul Kirk made came from Marilyn Shepard's broken teeth, which were found beneath her body. Her teeth had clearly been broken outward by the murder weapon. If the teeth had been broken inward as the prosecution claimed, then Shepard likely would have suffered some open wounds or bite marks in his skin. But his skin was unmarked. Shepard's defense tried to present this new evidence to the trial judge in order to obtain a new trial for their client, but the judge rejected them. Two months later, the State Court of Appeals upheld the conviction. The case went next to the Ohio State Supreme Court, who admitted in their decision that, yes, while it was true that Sam Shepard had been treated unfairly by the press and had been found guilty by the court of public opinion even before the actual trial was over. But despite all that, they still found that Shepard's trial was just fair enough to allow the conviction to stand. Shepard's attorney, Corrigan, then tried to take the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the court declined to hear it. Five years later, Shepard's attorney, William Corrigan, died at the age of 75. For a time, it appeared that Shepard's last hope died with him. Interest in Shepard's case remained high in the public, in 1963, the popular television program The Fugitive debuted. The story of the handsome young doctor, Richard Kimball, being falsely accused of murder was loosely based on Sam Shepard. In 1993, a big-budget remake film was released starring Harrison Ford. Back in 1961, after the death of his first attorney, William Corrigan, Sam Shepard decided that his only chance at securing his freedom might be by changing public opinion about him. He hoped this might happen if he were to pass an independent polygraph test. As luck would have it, they caught the attention of a 25-year-old attorney and polygraph expert from Boston named F. Lee Bailey. The young attorney had just passed the bar exam only one year earlier, but he was intrigued by the possibility of representing one of the most infamous convicted murderers in America. Bailey, of course, would go on to become one of the most well-known attorneys in the world for his defense of such celebrity clients as Patty Hearst, O.J. Simpson, and Albert DeSalvo, a.k.a. the Boston Strangler. Bailey took a new approach to Shepard's case. Whereas William Corrigan had attempted to put the press on trial for their mishandling of Shepard's story, Bailey decided to use the press to his advantage, instead going after the state for their shoddy and biased investigation. He took the case to federal court where he argued that his client had been denied his right to a fair trial based on the excessive media coverage. While all this legal wrangling was going on, another surprising development occurred in the life of Sam Shepard while he was in prison. In 
He was visited by a German divorcee named Ariane Tebenjohans, who had read about his case and begun corresponding with him a few years earlier. Sam and Ariane would become engaged in 1963, which would only spark even more controversy when it was revealed that Ariane's half-sister was the wife of Nazi propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels. In the legal realm, events seemed to finally be moving in Shepard's direction. At a press club event, the columnist Dorothy Kilgallen, who had once given daily reports on the trial, publicly made an offhand remark that before the trial began, the judge in the case told her that he thought Shepard was guilty as hell and the trial was a mere formality. It just so happened that F. Lee Bailey was in the audience that day when she made that admission. Bailey jumped on the statement and had Kilgallen write it down in an official deposition. In 1964, a federal judge issued a scathing decision that Sam Shepard had been treated incredibly unfairly by both the press and the prosecution. The judge declared a mistrial and ordered Shepard's immediate release. One week later, Sam Shepard walked free. He and Ariane Tebenjohans immediately went to Chicago and eloped. The couple moved into a small house back in Bay Village just a few miles away from the house where Marilyn Shepard was murdered. The U.S. Court of Appeals overturned Shepard's conviction, but Bailey managed to keep Shepard out of prison on bail as he continued to argue the case all the way up to the highest court in the land, the U.S. Supreme Court. On June 6, 1966, the Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling that Shepard's constitutional rights had been violated by the extreme carnival atmosphere created by the wall-to-wall media coverage. Within days of having Shepard's conviction declared null and void, the Cuyahoga County prosecutor declared his intention to retry Shepard for his wife's murder. At the September 1966 trial, things went a lot differently than before. For one, the judge kept the press in much tighter check. For another, Dr. Paul Kirk was allowed to testify about the blood spatter analysis he had conducted. The jury remained sequestered throughout the trial. Bailey shredded Dr. Gerber once he got him on the witness stand. At one point, he got the coroner to admit that in the 10 years that had passed since the murder, he had been unable to find a medical instrument that matched the one he previously testified had been used to murder Marilyn Shepard. With the key witness defeated on the stand and little other evidence in the prosecution's favor, the jury ultimately acquitted Dr. Shepard of the murder of his wife. Sam Shepard was a free man at last, but it proved to be a hollow victory. The strain of the last 10 years had taken its toll on Shepard, He admitted to reporters later on that he had actually brought a gun with him to court, although he refused to say whether he intended to commit suicide with it if convicted again. After his acquittal, Sam Shepard managed to get his medical license reinstated. But he had been away from the operating room for too long, and by now he was hopelessly hooked on alcohol and pills. Two patients died while under his scalpel. Facing multiple malpractice suits, Shepard was forced to resign from the medical profession once again. In December 1968, Ariane divorced Sam, citing his downward spiral into alcoholism and addiction. That same year, Sam met a professional wrestler named George Strickland, who convinced Sam to participate in a charity event. It was supposed to be a one-time thing, but the one match turned into another and another. He began touring with Strickland, using the skills he'd picked up in a prison wrestling group and participating in matches in smoky union halls and high school gymnasiums throughout the country. Two months after his first match, Shepard ran off to Mexico with Strickland's 19-year-old daughter Colleen and married her. But the downward spiral of booze and barbiturates soon took its toll. On April 6, 1970, Dr. Sam Shepard died of liver failure. 
1989, Dr. Sam's son, Samuel Reese Shepard, took up his father's cause and began a lifelong search for the bushy-haired man he believed was the real killer. And it's quite possible he found him. He learned that a mentally disturbed man named Richard Eberling had worked as a handyman and window washer for the Shepard home. Eberling, as it turned out, was currently in prison for the murder of an elderly man. Samuel Reese Shepard went to visit Richard Eberling in prison in order to see if he could possibly be his mother's killer. Eberling denied having anything to do with the murder, but he did do a curious thing when he drew an excessively detailed diagram of the Shepard home straight from memory. It included a rarely used entrance that even the police had failed to include in their own sketches. Reese Shepard hired a detective agency to look into Eberling's background. They discovered a history of mental issues and abuse when he was a child. It also turned out that in 1959, just five years after Marilyn Shepard's murder, Eberling had been arrested and convicted of several burglaries around Bay Village. At the time of his arrest, he had in his possession two rings belonging to Marilyn Shepard that he stole from Sam Shepard's brother. Eberling got them from a box that was clearly labeled as the belongings of Marilyn Shepard. These were also the same two rings that Marilyn's attacker failed to tear off her hand on the night of the murder. While in prison, Eberling even admitted to having been inside the Shepard home days before the murder, and that he had cut himself and left some of his blood inside. Records show that Eberling had a scar on his wrist that matched possible wounds obtained in the attack, and that Coroner Gerber was aware of it and had suppressed all this information. Investigators who have looked into the case came up with a theory that Eberling probably saw Marilyn Shepard on more than one occasion while washing windows. He became obsessed with her, and that he broke into the Shepard home that fateful night with the intent to rape Marilyn and rob the place. Although it is known that Eberling's hair was short at the time, it's possible he could have worn a wig, which would explain the bushy-haired man many witnesses, including Sam Shepard himself, described. The one drawing made based on witness testimony does bear a resemblance to Eberling with longer hair. Some investigators who have looked at the case think that Eberling probably startled Marilyn awake, then bashed her head in with a flashlight he carried with him, which would explain the odd crescent-shaped wounds in her face and head. When Shepard chased the man out of the house, he managed to knock the doctor unconscious on the beach, but then realized his shirt was covered with blood. So he peeled off Dr. Sam's t-shirt to cover himself and tossed his own bloody shirt in the lake. That would explain why Shepard was inexplicably bare-chested the morning of the murder. In 1998, it was further revealed that traces of semen were found in Marilyn Shepard's vagina, something that was never revealed during the trial. Surprisingly, viable specimens were still in police evidence, along with traces of blood taken from the scene. Reese Shepard had his father's body exhumed, and DNA testing was able to prove conclusively that Dr. Sam did not commit the murder. Not only that, but Eberling's DNA was found on some of the evidence. And although the scientists who did the tests were unwilling to say with 100% certainty that Eberling was the real killer, they did say the perpetrator did share certain unique genetic markers with Eberling. Richard Eberling died in prison before he could ever be tried for the murder of Marilyn Shepard. But shortly after his death, an inmate came forward claiming that Eberling admitted to murdering Marilyn Shepard along with four other women. Attorneys for Samuel Reese Shepard attempted to sue the state in order to prove that his father had been wrongly convicted. In April 2000, a jury returned a unanimous verdict that Sam Shepard's conviction was correct. The Shepard family continued to appeal their case after a few years. The last of their appeals ran out. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, 
Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Want to give a big shout out to my latest Patreon supporter, Michael. And thanks to each and every one of you who helps support the show and keep the lights on. Patrons to the show get access to all sorts of rewards like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. I also wanted to announce that as an extra thanks to my supporters, I'm going to be holding a special drawing in time for my next episode on July 23rd, during which I'm going to draw a name at random from one of my patrons in order to win a Conspirator's tote bag. If you're not on Patreon but still want to help support the show, there are a number of ways you can do so. We have a donate button on our homepage, theconspiratorspodcast.com, along with the store where we sell all sorts of merchandise. A really simple way you can support the show is by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your five-star reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and moves us up in their charts. If you're not on Apple, we're also on Google Play, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll come back next time.